Good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study together. We pray that your spirit will be with us, that we can have our minds enlightened today. We also want to remember a member of our class who is ill this week. Um, We're thinking of the Canopers and that you will be with them at this time and bring healing in accordance with your will. Thank you now in your holy name. Amen. Uh, We are looking at uh, lesson number 11 in our quarterly, The Atonement and the Cross of Christ. And the lesson title this week is Benefits of Christ's Atoning Sacrifice. How many had an opportunity to look ahead at the lesson for this week? What did you all think? Um, Uh, Well, it's you and not me. You You know, there's so many places to start. I'm really debating where do we start because I I don't know that we'll get through. Normally, I, I come with seven pages. I've got 15 pages this week. So there's just so much rich material in this lesson for clarification. I guess we'll just go ahead and start on Sunday's lesson at the very first paragraph. Somebody read that for us. The doctrinal significance of the bodily resurrection of Christ is of utmost importance because without it there is no forgiveness of sin, no salvation, and no hope of eternal life. Thoughts about that, the idea. The tying the bodily resurrection of Christ with forgiveness. Did you notice that? Mm-hmm. Yes. Thoughts about that? I think he forgave long before he went to the cross. Yeah, I mean, what came first? God's forgiveness or Christ's death and then resurrection, which enabled God to forgive? Forgiveness. That's forgiveness. Hmm. But if the resurrection hadn't occurred... None of it would have been affected. It would have been lost. Okay, there's a point to that. There's an absolute point to that. And that's the premise that a lot of people put together. They put together this underlying premise that forgiveness and salvation are the same thing. They, they, that's what the implication is in the, in, the, in the writing here. That forgiveness and salvation are the same thing. Are they? No. no. But that's why you hear things like, without the death of Christ, we couldn't be forgiven. Without the resurrection of Christ, we couldn't be forgiven. Because they equate forgiveness and salvation. Is it possible to be forgiven and not saved? Yes. yes. So the people that put Christ on the cross were forgiven but not saved. You see, does God ever remain unforgiving? Will God, through eternity, have an unforgiving heart, hold a grudge for all eternity against those who refuse salvation? No. No. God's heart is a heart of forgiveness, is it not? But is God's heart of forgiveness the same thing as salvation? That's really the question we're talking about. Was God precluded from being forgiving or extending forgiveness without the death and resurrection of Christ? No. You know, a lot of people think that that he is. The the implication from the author is that he was precluded, that the death of Christ opened the door, enabled, or or made possible God's forgiveness. Let's move on with this question of the forgiveness. In the bottom of Monday's lesson, in the pink section, it states, Have you sinned? even after you've accepted Jesus as your Savior? If so, what comfort do you get from knowing that Christ is mediating God's forgiveness on your behalf in heaven? (laughs) Why are you laughing, Russell? I don't find that comforting at all. What's what's comforting to me is that that Christ is (laughs) mediating in my life. Did you all find that statement comforting? That when you sinned after accepting Jesus as your Savior, you're comforted to know that Christ is mediating God's forgiveness in your behalf in heaven. 
Does that comfort you? Well, ask some questions. Think it through. Ask some questions. Who would Christ be mediating God's forgiveness in your behalf in heaven to? If he's mediating God's forgiveness in your behalf in heaven, who's he doing it to? They're implying to God, to an angry God. And does that comfort you to know that God needs his son to mediate uh, forgiveness to him? It really defies logic. I mean, if God is a forgiving God, why does he need to be mediated to? Or if the Father and Christ are one, it's nonsense. Yeah, it's, cir- it's circular or specious. Exactly. Well, thanks, sir. Another place in the lesson it says he's mediating benefits of God's forgiveness to us. Yeah, do you think that's what's implied here? No. Yeah. He stated it elsewhere in the lesson another way. So the question then is who needs the forgiveness of God mediated to, to them? Yeah, we need that. Yeah, and so and so we have in Romans chapter two verse four, Paul says the kindness of God leads us to repentance. God's goodness, God's kindness, God's forgiveness. It's when we come aware how gracious, how loving, how forgiving, how good God is that it breaks our heart and leads us to repentance. And then Romans five eight says, while we were yet sinners, or while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words. God didn't send his son to change him. God sent his son to change us. There's a metaphor in the Old Testament. Miriam, if you remember, was arguing with Moses. Moses was leading Israel. Miriam was arguing over who should lead Israel. And does anybody remember what happened to Miriam? Struck with leprosy. Struck with leprosy. Leprosy is a metaphor for? Sin. Sin. And so when you're leprous, you could not enter the camp, right? Okay, because Israel is a metaphor for our new Canaan, you know, the heavenly beyond. Okay, so you're leprous, you can't be in with the people because sin is not going to be in the eternal beyond. Now, God could forgive Miriam from his heart. Miriam, I'm not mad at you. I forgive you. You're my child. Does that mean God had to heal her from leprosy? Or could she be forgiven and still have leprosy? And so... If from Miriam's perspective, is she, is she concerned that she wants God to be forgiving, or does she want to be healed so she could be restored to the people? She wants to be healed. Yeah. What do we want? Do we simply want to know that God has forgiven us, or do we need more than God's forgiveness in our lives? We need healing, regeneration, recreation, and then think through all the metaphors of Scripture. We're to be born again. We're going to have the law written on the heart. The heart of stone is removed. The heart of flesh. We're going to have circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. To have the mind of Christ. Be recreated in the inner man. Have a new heart and a right spirit. I mean, all the metaphors, what are they talking about? Aren't they talking about a transforming, recreating, regenerating, renewing process? So back to Sunday's lesson. God forgives because God is forgiving. Christ did not come to earth to achieve forgiveness from God. He came to minister the forgiveness of God. Yes? Yes. Okay. So then read First uh, Corinthians fifteen, sixteen through eighteen. The lesson suggests we look at that right in, in Monday's le- I mean Sunday's lesson there. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And those who those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Right after that quote, it says, The death of Christ would not have had any atoning or forgiving power had it not been followed by the resurrection of the Lord. Do you see anything in that text about forgiveness being tied with his resurrection? 
I didn't see anything about that in there. But does the text say something about our salvation being tied to his resurrection? It does, doesn't it? Yet we have no hope if he didn't rise again. So, why would the death of Christ have no atoning power or saving power, reconciling power without the resurrection? Without the resurrection, it would have been a sign that the whole planet failed. A sign that the whole planet failed. Okay, I like that. That's exactly right. Why? Why would the planet have failed? Or in other words, what does the resurrection prove? That victory over sin or death had occurred. Oh, I like that. I like that. If atoning means... Well, what does atoning mean? Maybe we should ask that question. Reconciling. Is that how the lesson authors use it when you read it in the lesson this week? No. How do you hear them using it? Payment. Okay, so if let's go to those two channels, we should think through both sides of the equation. If atoning means payment, appeasement, legal, legal debt paid, if that's what it means, what is the debt we have for sin? Death. What kind of death? An eternal death. So if the debt we have is an eternal death, and atoning means to have your eternal death paid, then the resurrection of Christ would mean your debt's not paid. (laughs) Wouldn't it? If the debt is eternal death, wouldn't his staying in the grave give us secure to know, hey, our debt has been paid? But his rising again would say, wait a minute, eternal death hasn't been paid. We we should have insecurity and fear here. If atoning means paying your legal debt and the debt is eternal death. But if atoning actually means at one, reconciling, unifying, bringing us back into oneness with God, if that's what atoning means instead of paying debt, then what does his death mean? Or his resurrection mean? The resurrection then is the inevitable consequence to the law of love, destroying the law of sin and death in Christ's victorious life. Hebrews 2.14, He took upon himself human flesh that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And 2 Timothy 1.9 and 10, by his death he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to life. So, just as recovery and health is the inevitable result of curing a disease, life is the inevitable result of Christ's victory over sin. Is it not? His resurrection is the proof that he won, that he destroyed sin and death, and that the remedy he achieved works to cure sinners, and thus we are assured that death has no power over those who trust Jesus. Do you see the difference between this, the model that he destroyed, what the Bible says in Timothy, destroyed death, destroyed him with the power of death versus paying the legal debt, which would mean that he needs to stay in the grave. See, the, the causality principle is different. In one model, why is it that the death comes in the appeasement model? Because God, in order to be just, has to inflict the penalties that the law demands upon the wicked. He must execute justice upon sinners and execute the sinner. In the other model, life is not possible outside of harmony with the law that of love, which life was created to operate upon. Breaches in this law result in death. The wages of sin is death. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. These are Bible quotes. And so in this model, we have to cure the condition. In the healing model, Christ had to overcome and destroy the very principles that bring death, which he did. In the other model, we have to appease God. Which do you think Christ was working to do? To destroy sin and restore his character of love and humanity or he's working to appease his father. 
Which model do you think is more consistent with Scripture? This story said. There's a lot of uncertainty, it seems. Are we uncertain? Un- unsure? Well, ask questions as we go along, because we need to be sure about this. It makes a huge difference in whether we can trust God or not. Last paragraph of Sunday's lesson. Somebody read that last paragraph for us. Jesus took to heaven our glorified human nature, thus opening the portals of heaven to the human race. His resurrection and ascension mean, first, that he finished the work he came to do on earth. Second, through his resurrection and ascension, Christ permanently united to God those who will put their faith in his sacrificial death. No power in the universe could separate them from God. Since Christ removed the barrier of sin, God's love constantly and eternally will flow to his people. Third, the ascension of Christ also testifies that his defeat of evil powers on the cross was final. After his ascension, he was enthroned as co-regent with God, sitting at his right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. He will remain with the Father until his enemies are subjected to him. Then he will return to save those who are waiting for him, thus consummating his work of salvation. Notice how the lesson says in that very first sentence that he returned to heaven with a glorified human nature. Where did that glorified human nature come from? How did he get it? He developed a perfect character through suffering. Notice that. The Bible teaches that. That he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And Hebrews 5, 8, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Christ overcame thought by thought, moment by moment, decision by decision, step by step in his human nature. He was overcoming those principalities and powers of evil. He developed, created, restored, regenerated humanity back to the way God originally intended it to be in his own personhood. Thus, I think the lesson author is correct, that he went to heaven with a glorified human nature that he achieved. It was an achievement here on earth. Yes? Yes. yes. Okay. Now, and notice in the lesson, it's also asked, it says the, the following quote, it says, Christ removed the barrier of sin. Well, where was that barrier? In our hearts. In our hearts. Notice that very carefully. Well, Christ's work is to remove the barrier of sin, and the barrier of sin exists where? In us. Christ is not working on the Father to remove some anger or wrath or hostility or irritability or something from the Father. He's working in us to remove the barrier. So what was preventing God's love from flowing to his people without Christ? Was God restricting the outpouring of his love until Christ? Or was God's love obstructed from flowing into the hearts of mankind without Christ? Was God restricting the outpouring of his love? Or was the love obstructed from flowing into our hearts without Christ? Well, what was it that obstructed God's love from flowing into our hearts without Christ? Misunderstandings. Say that louder, Ashley. Misunderstandings. Misunderstandings about? God's. It says in Isaiah 60, it says, Darkness covered the people, gross darkness the people. Darkness about what? God's character. John chapter 1 says the Word was made flesh, and Jesus is the Word. That lightens, or he's the light that lightens all men. Lightens all men about? God. Exactly right. Exactly right. Okay, so Monday's lesson talks about mediation. 
And this lesson talks about mediation this week, the mediation of Christ. And, and as we go into the lesson, I just, I've compiled sentences from the lessons. I went through and pulled sentences. These are all quotes from different parts of the lesson. And I'm going to just read these to you and then, and let's talk about the phraseology here. This, these first four out of Monday's lesson, then one out of Wednesday, and then two out of Friday. It says, the death and resurrection of Christ make possible the mediation of Christ before the Father. That makes the role of our mediator before the Father an indispensable element in the plan of salvation. In the Bible, the mediation of Christ before the Father is never separated from his atoning sacrifice. John says we have an advocate who can represent us before God and through whom we can be forgiven. Wednesday's lesson, earth probably would have been as desolate as Mars if not for the cross of Christ and for Christ's mediation before the Father. Friday. The Savior presents the virtue of his mediation before the Father and pledges himself to the office of personal intercessor. If God loves us and sent his Son to die for us, why is it necessary for Jesus to function as a mediator before the Father? What do you think about this language? It's a misunderstanding of the text. Is it a misunderstanding of the text? Which text? 1 John 2, 1 and 2. Okay, we're going to look at that text in a minute. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. We're going to look at that. Uh, Don't we need to envision which way Christ is facing? If he's before the Father, is he facing the Father and pleading our behalf to the Father? Or is he facing us, uh, revealing, continuing to reveal the love of God to us and interceding with us? What do you all think? How have you heard it? Have you ever, when you've heard phrases like this, what do you think the lesson authors mean first? He's our attorney. He's our public defender. Defending us in the courts of heaven. Right. Okay. Against the the accusation that we have defiled God's holy law and must be... uh, And historically, historically, where does that concept come from? Paganism. Paganism. Recognize Protestantism, all the Protestant churches came from... Catholicism. And the Catholic Church came from pagan. pagan Rome. The Catholic Church would like you to believe it came from Peter. That's not so. The Church of the Apostles was the church in hiding, the, the Church of the Waldenses, the Church of the Huguenots. That was the, that, was the, that was the Church of the Apostles. The Catholic Church, the Roman Church, came when Constantine, basically through a political act, uh, made an edict that the, the official state church was now Christian. And all the Christian, all the pagan Ritual simply became Christianized. And that's where the, the Roman church came from. In the heart of paganism, at its heart, they have lots of peripheral things, but at the heart, we have angry, wrathful deities who have to be appeased, assuaged, paid, uh, bought off in order to be forgiving and gracious. And thus, in the heart of Catholicism, we have a God who must be appeased with the blood of his son. So the son, Mary, uh, all the saints are pleading to the father because he has to be pled with. Not only that, through the history of Catholicism, there were indulgences that you could pay. You could physically buy your appeasement from God by paying uh, uh, money uh, to the church. Uh, You could also do penance and works to work your way because the God had to be appeased. He was angry and wrathful. and You had to do something to earn his forgiveness and graciousness. It's the heart of paganism. Now, the Protestant Reformation came along, and through the 500 years, there's been a gradual reformation of different types of abuses, get rid of penance, get rid of the the intercessory priesthoods of of earthly priesthood, all these different things, slowly. But the heart of it, the core, still in Protestantism today, is an angry, wrathful God, which requires appeasement, and his son is up there pleading his blood to his father to assuage his angry wrath. 
the heart of paganism still. And I think God is waiting for us to finish the Reformation, to throw off this distortion and to see God as Jesus revealed him to be, a God of loving grace. For God is, if God is for us, who can be against us? God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Jesus says he will not pray the Father for us because the Father himself loves us in John 16. And so if we go back to the Bible, we will reject this idea that one member of the Godhead is working on another member of the Godhead in order to assuage, appease, or somehow influence him. They're all on the same side. So that's where this idea of the pagan perspective, this before the Father, comes from. Yes? There is a tension between the justice of God, the mercy of God. God is love, and, and both sides are present. And it's the entire Godhead who has this characteristic, that there is, there is a, an order, a, a law within their government, their ruling, that means there is a justice to things. Those that are abused by somebody through sin, um, there is a rectifying of that, a, a bringing about of justice and, and a fairness. And so... While it is not a vengeful side of God, there is still the justice side of God. And the very fact that Jesus had to die on the cross reveals that there is that law that has to be kept. That law could not be just, oh, God God is so loving and merciful that he just lets things go and let things slide. Jesus had to die for that justice to be satisfied, for that fairness of God to be justified. And so we're not coming before a vengeful God to be, you know, Jesus has to mediate for us, but it's accepting Jesus' blood and sacrifice, and he's saying, this is my person, this is my child, and I want you to to see that he has satisfied the requirements to be part of our family. Well, you brought up some excellent points. Let's see if we can explore the meaning of all of what you've said. Uh, justice. Would we not agree that whatever justice for any sovereign entity is based upon the law of that entity? For instance, justice in the United States is based upon the Constitution. Right. Justice in God's government is based upon his law. Would we agree? Okay. So what law is it we're talking about in God's government? The law of love. It's the law of love. Is it not? And so the law of love, is this an enacted law? Is it a legislated law? Is it an, an edict put forward? Or is it a principle that emanates from the God of love? God is love. It's his personhood. It's his character. His very name and his attributes. Exactly. So it's not something he, he just imposed or enacted. It emanates from him. Okay. And when he creates... Does he create things out of harmony with that law of love, or is creation design, the design template, built upon the law of love? Is it built on something other than the law of love, or is it built upon the law of love? Okay, and Paul says in Romans one twenty that God's divine nature, eternal power, and invisible qualities are seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. In other words, through creation, and to God's nature is love. So we can look into nature and see this law. This life principle. And I, I'm going to suggest to you that all life is designed in harmony or to work upon this law. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 what this love looks like. It says love is not self-seeking. 
That's a negative. Spin it to a positive. If love doesn't seek self, then love does seek others or outward moving. It's the principle of giving, the principle of beneficence, the principle of, of other-centeredness rather than self-centeredness. We, we agree so far? Okay, this is the law, the law of love, the law of the universe. Now, when God creates, everything's designed on this. And so we see the oceans giving freely their water to the clouds, which rain over the lands, giving their waters to the lands, forming lakes, rivers, and streams, which flow back to the ocean, a never-ending circle of giving, which brings life to everything. If a body of water separates from the circle, it stagnates and everything in it dies. Uh, You give away with every breath freely carbon dioxide to the plants. The plants give back oxygen to you. Now, you can decide, I don't want to be part of the circle of giving. If my body made it, I have a right to it. I can keep it. You can't have it. But the only way to do that is to stop breathing and to die. If you look into nature, you will see in everything God creates, the electron circles around the atom, the planet circle around the sun, solar systems in the galaxies, galaxies in the universe. In Ezekiel chapter 1 and 10, when Ezekiel has a vision of God, he looks into heaven, he sees God's throne, and at the foundation of the throne, which symbolically is showing what God's government's built upon, he sees the wheel within the wheel, the rotation within the rotation, the circle within the circle. The foundation of God's government is the law of love, which is an other-centered, never-ending giving, principle of beneficence, outward-moving Okay, uh, This is all life in the universe is designed to operate upon this. In, even in our economy. For our economy to be healthy, the money has to be in circulation. circulation. If you take the money out of circulation, it dies. God tried to teach us this in the Old Testament sacrificial system. When they confessed sins on the head of the lamb, the sinner would then cut the circulation. The life is in the blood, it says, and it circles. A never-ending circle. But when you break the circle... The life ebbs away and it dies. Teaching that sin is severing of the law of God, which is the law of love, which is the life principle that everything is designed in the universe to create upon. Thus, the Bible teaches when you break that law, the wages of sin is death. Or in James, sin when it is full grown brings forth death. Because sin severs the life principle, the law of love. Now, how did that happen? Imagine the couples in this room that are married. You're in a healthy, loving, other-centered, Christ-like, beneficent marriage. And somebody close to you, your own mother, your own father, your own brother, sister, somebody you trust comes to you and tells you a lie that your spouse is having an affair. There's no truth in it. But they bring some digitally enhanced photos they made on their computer showing your spouse in the arms of another. If you believe the lie, even though your spouse is still loyal, even though they're still faithful and true, if you believe the lie, will something inside of you change? Yes. Yes. Does the circle of love and trust get broken? Yes. Satan is the father of? Lies. In Eden, he told lies about? Lies. Now notice the progression. Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. And as soon as love and trust is broken, fear and selfishness come in. I no longer trust you, God. I believe lies about you. So now I'm afraid of you, and I no longer trust you to watch out for me, so I've got to watch out for myself. This is the survival of the fittest principle that infects God's creation. All nature now is weighed down under the principle of this destructive element that destroys God's creation. So lies believe break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. Fear and selfishness result in acts of sin. The disobedience, the bad deeds we do, destructive acts, which result in damage to mind, character, and body, a terminal condition. Without intercession, without intervention, the wages of sin is death. It's terminal. It leads to death. It's a terminal condition. So what is God's justice in his universe? Healing. Well, what is, the, what is the just thing for a loving parent to do if that child disobeys and eats poison berries? 
I warned you, in the day that you eat of the berries on that tree, how was I, Mom? Five? Four? Three? I was three. Ate the poison berry. Had to go to the hospital to get my stomach pumped. I was three. Okay? Warn, don't eat those berries. In the day you eat, you will surely die. Now, after my mother gave me this just warning, and I ate anyway, should justice require that my mother let me die? No. No. Should justice require that my brother, who didn't disobey, be killed in my stead to pay the debt that I now owe? (laughs) What does justice require if the justice is based on love? A remedy to heal the condition. And so now that man is infected with this terminal state, the selfishness, fear, me first, which only leads to death, Christ came. To do what? To pay his father or to fix the condition? To put mankind back into harmony with the law that life is predicated upon. And so notice the unique thing that Christ did. Adam was created out of the dust of the ground. Eve was taken from his side, two sinless and perfect beings. How many of you came in the world that way? We didn't come in the world that way. We came from a sinful mother and a sinful father. Yes? As uh, Psalms 51, born in sin, conceived in iniquity. That's us. We're born infected, terminal. What about Jesus Christ, his humanity? Did he come into the world from dust to the ground? Did he come from the side of a sinless human being? Did he come from sinful parents? No. No. He came from a sinful mother, Galatians chapter 4, 4, born of a woman, born under law, but his father was God himself. So in Christ Jesus, he took upon himself a humanity infected with this condition to tempt him to act in self-interest. But in his heart and mind, the law of love perfectly flowed without being severed. And so in the person of Jesus Christ, the two antagonistic principles warded out. He suffered temptation, Hebrews chapter 4, 15. He was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. James chapter 1 says that uh, no one should say God tempts because God doesn't tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we are drug away and enticed by our own evil desires. How many of you have ever been tempted by your own evil desires? Yes. Now, are both of those passages true? Was Jesus tempted in every way just like we are, and we are tempted by our desires? Then does that mean Jesus was tempted by human desire? Yes. Yes. And we see it in Gethsemane. In Gethsemane, did Jesus experience powerful emotions to act in self-interest to save himself? But in every time the temptation came, unlike you and I, we give in, Christ overcame that by, no one can take my life, I will give it, which is the law of love, which is the law of giving. So notice the two antagonistic principles, the principle of selfishness, me first, survival of the fittest, warring it out with the principle of other-centered love, beneficence, and giving. And in the human being mind of Jesus Christ, his mind, the two principles met, and Jesus fought the battle we could never fight. And he perfectly restored God's love in his human walk and journey. This is why he had to die. Because at any point along death's approach, he exercises his power to stop death's approach, which he could have done. Who does he save? But refusing to use his power to save himself, giving himself freely instead, which law wins? The law of love. And thus, he cured the condition, and this is why he rose again, because the law of sin and death was destroyed and had no power over him. Thus, the Timothy text, he, by his death, he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to life. This is justice. This is the justice of eradicating sin and the sin infection of fear and selfishness. It's a real remedy. And thus, 
he goes to heaven, and now what is he doing in heaven? He said to his disciples, it's good that I leave, because if I don't leave, the comforter won't come. When he comes, he's not going to speak on his own. He's going to speak only what he hears. Who's he listening to, do you think? Christ. Christ. And he's going to take what is mine and make it known to you. What is it that Jesus has that we need? The truth. The truth about God that wins us to trust and a perfect character in harmony with the law of love. And thus the Holy Spirit is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We get a new heart and a right spirit. We're regenerated in the inner man. Christ is the, is the vine. We are the branches. The Holy Spirit is the conduit that takes what Christ has achieved and reproduces it in us. This is justice. Is it not? Amen. It is a transforming, literal victory over the powers of evil forces that Christ achieved. Amen. So this idea before the Father. Let's go to the First John 2, 1 text and see it. and See what it says. Somebody read 1 John 2, 1 from the NIV. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Okay, there's the NIV. The NIV interprets this passage as, we have somebody who speaks to the Father in our defense. Clearly, the pagan influence here, God needs to be spoken to. He's not on our side. We must be defended against the Father. How about the good news? Anybody have a good news? I am writing this to you, my children, so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have someone who pleads with the Father on our behalf, Jesus Christ the righteous. In the first one, someone who speaks in our defense, this one it says, someone who pleads to the Father on our behalf. Again, the idea that the Father needs to be pled with to protect us. Yes, you have a comment. In the courtroom, there is an accuser. And so somebody is in there accusing the brethren all the time. And the mediation has to happen because Satan is accusing. Not because the father's upset or the father doesn't know anything, but because Satan is there. And when you leave that out and automatically go to, oh, this just means the father's mad at us, you're missing all that we know about it. There's truth in what you say, and there's Bible texts that support that. Anybody think of some Bible texts to support what he's saying? As a metaphor, as a construct. Certainly the Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. Right? Think that in mind while we finish this text on first John. We'll come back to that. All right, first John two one. Somebody have the New American Standard Bible? Anybody have that one? Okay, this is what it says in New American Standard. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So one who speaks to the Father in our defense, someone who pleads to the Father on our behalf, an advocate with the Father. How do you like these interpretations of this text? With the width of the last one more better? Yeah. Here's the uh, new century version. My dear children, I write this letter to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have a helper in the presence of the Father, Jesus Christ, the one who does what is right. Wow, that's that's a different slant. That, 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 that's a whole that's a horse of a different color, they say. A helper in the presence of the Father. And this is from the message. I write this, dear children, to guide you out of sin. But if anyone does sin, we have a priest friend in the presence of the Father, Jesus Christ. And then my personal paraphrase, I sometimes share this, says, my precious children, I am writing you so that you will realize the power of God's love to free you from selfishness and therefore experience God's healing and no longer live selfishly. But if during the healing processes, relapses into selfishness occur, don't be discouraged. Jesus stands at the helm of all power, right next to God, and is pouring his love into our hearts to complete his restoring and healing work. Now, 
how do we know which is the way to go here? Do we take one verse of Scripture in isolation, or, or must Scripture harmonize with Scripture? Well, how do we know which way Jesus is mediating? Mediating to the Father? Pleading? Advocating? Protecting us from the Father? Or advocating from the Father, the conduit, following the Father's guidance, following the Father's direction, following the Father's plan, doing the Father's work to redeem and save us? What was the original Greek word that was used there? The Greek word there is paraclete, from which we get counselor in the text when Jesus said to the disciples, it is good that I leave, the counselor won't come. He uses the word paraclete, one who walks alongside, a helper. But they all could be saying the same thing. You go to court, you're there, you're there because someone has made a charge against you. The judge says, how do you plead? Who's the judge in this case? God is the judge. Really? Jesus said in John that the Father judges no one. All judgment has been given to me. Yeah, but that's the final way. But Was there some other way than the final way? Daniel 7, you know. Here's the Almighty God sitting there, right? And all the angels around about him. And uh, or go to uh, Zechariah. We're going to go to Zechariah in a minute, absolutely. Okay. Yes. But the whole point is, you got to... How are you going to plead? So your lawyer pleads for you, right? Uh, See, the problem with that metaphor is we're using a human 20th century court scene to try to understand God's government. It doesn't work. Well, I didn't say it worked. (laughs) (laughs) Because Jesus himself said, For the hour of God's judgment has come, it says in Revelation chapter 14. Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Is that the hour that he is judging? Or the hour that he is being judged? The hour of his judgment has come. It's the hour that we judge him, that we make a judgment. Do we trust him or do we not trust him? It's the time, folks. Do we see Jesus and the Father as one, as Jesus said? Or do we still see the Father as somebody who can't be trusted unless Jesus is there to protect us from him? It's time for us to judge. That's what time this is. Romans chapter 3, 4, Paul says, God may you win your case when you take it into court. Philip's translation. Who was accused as being the untrustworthy? Who was the, the accuser of the brethren? We talked about Satan. But who was the first person he accused? God himself. God was the original one who was accused of being untrustworthy. God was the original one on defense. God was the original one who was attacked. And every consequence has come because we have lost trust in God. And thus all the scriptures are teaching. For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, that they rejected the truth about God. They exchanged the knowledge of God for a lie. They preferred the images made with their own hands to the truth about God. And the mind becomes darkened. The mind becomes futile. The mind becomes depraved. Our minds can't be healed if we hold to lies about God. Life eternal is... John 17, 3, knowing God. It always comes back to the truth about God. That's the central thing. Unless Jesus said, the Father judges no one. All judgment is given to me, and I will not judge you. The words spoken, the truth itself, will be your judge. In other words, if you have a terminal condition, if you have disobeyed your parents and you slept around, you've got HIV positive, and now you're dying from HIV, do your parents have to judge you? Or will your very condition, uncured, judge you? Our very unhealed, selfish hearts and minds ultimately are our judge. 
all those who have accepted Christ and opened the heart to him, experienced the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, and are healed and transformed and saved. But those who refuse that remain in their own sinful and terminal condition. And thus Christ even said that they are dead in their trespasses and sin. Dead. It's a condition. So the advocate idea. Yes. Um, Romans 3, 4, it, it says, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. And then the reference, Psalms 51, 4, and it also refers to God yeah, you, judging. So, you, no, you, read, you read it out of the NIV. That's very true. Okay. That, just like all these others, it's a translation. I quoted out of the Phillips. Philip was one of the century's most renowned Greek scholars. That's how he saw the reading of it. The translation is open to go either way. We have to determine which way it goes. The Amplified Bible says that you may be justified and shown to be upright in what you say and prevail when you are judged by sinful men. Okay, so there's another version. Prevail when you are judged by sinful men. God is the one who's been accused. He always has been. And that's why when you see that light, you will see that we are working with divine weapons to destroy or demolish everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And there are so many lies that, that have entered our, our belief system about God and what he's trying to do. Back to the other point, John 14. Anyone who has seen Christ has seen the Father, Jesus says. John 16, 26, Jesus said he would not pray the Father for us because the Father himself loves us. Romans eight thirty one. if God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare us some, but gave him up, how will he not also with him give us all things? It is God who justifies, who is it that condemns Christ Jesus? He is at the right hand of the Father and is, notice this, also interceding for us. So when you put the scriptures together, we know the first John 2 text can't be Jesus working on the Father. It doesn't work that way. Because the rest of scripture doesn't support it. It teaches very clearly they're in it together. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all in the plan of salvation. They're all on our side. They're all our friends. Notice how in the lesson, the lesson attempts to shift the problem from mankind to God. In Monday's lesson, the first paragraph says, the death and resurrection of Christ make possible the mediation of Christ before the Father. Christ's mediation means that human sin and guilt are not irrelevant before the Lord in heaven. It's only through Christ's work for us that we receive the benefits of a sacrificial death. Guilt and sin continue to be part of the human experience in God's sight. That makes the role of our mediator before the Father an indispensable element in the plan of salvation. Notice this. This is how they shift this idea that the problem is because God can see our sin. It's before God's sight, and he's up there working to somehow, you know, cover us in the robe of righteousness. So when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see our sinfulness. He sees the perfect robe of his Son covering our sinfulness. Well, that's wrong. That's like the candy-coated rotten apple theory, that we're coated in candy, but we're still rotten to the core, but the Father doesn't know how rotten we are because we got a candy coating on the outside. No. The cover with a robe of righteousness means to be transformed. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me, to have the heart regenerated to be like Christ. In Christ Object Lessons, page 214, it says the following. It says, the thoughts are brought in harmony with his thoughts. The desires are brought in harmony with his desires. The motive is brought in harmony with his, his motive. We live his life. This is what it means to be covered in the robe of righteousness. It's a transforming healing process. So, it's implying that we have a problem in our sins because it's the sight of God. But why is guilt and sin in the sight of God? Because God sees reality. That's why it's in his sight. He sees the universe and reality as it is, and we are still infected with it. Imagine a doctor who has a patient with cancer, and we say, the deformity and devastation of cancer is in the sight of that doctor. Would we think, oh, I sure hope there is an advocate with a doctor to help us if he actually sees how sick we are? Would we? No. 
Well, that's what we're saying. That's why David prayed, Father, search me and see the wicked way in me. Create me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. We have this idea that it's bad if God sees how sick we are. It's, it's not bad. We want our heavenly physician to see the sickness and we want him to cure it. Don't we? Back to the question. If Christ is not mediating on the Father, where is the focus of his mediation? Where does a doctor focus his interventions? In the patient. Christ is working in mediating in sinners. All of his goodness, all of his merits, all he accomplished, he is working to heal, restore the law of love in us. This is why the new covenant. What is the new covenant? I will write my law in your hearts and minds. What did Jesus say? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Where is it going? In the believer. I am the bread of heaven. Unless you partake of me. Every, all the work is done in us. Boy, there's so much to go on. The last paragraph says, It is perhaps for this reason that Hebrews 2.17 uses the verb to make atonement in the present tense, suggesting that Christ's work of reconciliation continues as the high priestly ministry. Hebrews 2.17. This is the King James. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. New American Standard says to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Good News says so that the sins of the people would be forgiven. NIV says that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. New Century Version says, then Jesus could die in their place to take away their sins. The message says, before God is high priest to get rid of the people's sins. The NIV says, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest. Yes, he could become a merciful and faithful high priest. What is Christ doing in heaven? Is he directing all the agencies of heaven to heal and restore me, or is he and you, or is he working on the Father in some way? What's he actually doing? We talked about this a moment ago. The Holy Spirit is his agency on earth. Christ said he will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. So if Christ is in heaven pleading, who's listening to Christ's pleadings? The Holy Spirit. And who is the Holy Spirit then communicating those pleadings to? Us. See, Christ said he will not listen. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking what is mine and make it known to you. This is why I say the Spirit will take what is mine and make it known to you. So he takes truth about God as revealed by Christ and enlightens us. He takes the purity of Christ and cleanses. He takes the love of Christ and empowers. He takes the mind of Christ and makes us wise. He takes the character of Christ and recreates us. He takes the nature of Christ and restores us to oneness with God. This is not what the Holy Spirit is doing. Amen. Tuesday's lesson. We're moving fast now. We've got about seven minutes. This is the, really the intense part. Tim? Yes. Can we possibly touch on this idea of two different types of grace that's brought up in Thursday's lesson as well? If we have time. Because we have to get to the heavenly mediation and heavenly sanctuary. It says, if the death of Christ cannot be separated from his resurrection, neither should we separate his enthronement and mediation after his resurrection. The forward-looking purpose of the resurrection was his installation as our high priest. Jesus finished his sacrificial work on the cross and is working now as king and priest in the heavenly sanctuary. So... The lesson is pointing us forward to the heavenly sanctuary. What do you understand the heavenly sanctuary to be? God's throne room. God's throne room. Well, I'd like that. That's good. I like that. Our hearts and minds. Well, does the Bible enlighten us about a heavenly sanctuary anywhere? Maybe. Hebrews 8, 1 and 2, it says, The point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest that sat down at the right hand 
of the throne of majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. And then in Hebrews 8, 5, uh, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you in the mountain. So we have these two texts that infer or tell us that there is a sanctuary in heaven. The question to you is, what do we understand it to be? Do we understand it to be a building like this building, made out of better sub- inert substances? Made out of like physical, inanimate bricks of gold and stuff? Is that what we understand it to be, or is it something else? Well, let's see if we get some insight. At the heart of the old system, at the very heart was the most holy place, and at the heart of that was the, was the ark, and at the heart of that was the law, right? Well, God's law is the law of love, and is this law a code, or is it a living law? Can the law of love be understood on stone or only in intelligent living creatures? Where do we see it? You see, we talk about the Ten Commandments being a transcript of God's character. I can take a cell sample from any of you in here. We can go get your DNA code, your exact code of your whole DNA, which would be a transcript of you. And it would be true. And we could learn things about you, your high, eye color, blood type, propensity to different diseases. But with that code, would we know the sound of your laugh? the warmth of your hug, the brightness of your smile, your love for Jesus. Well, we know that from looking at the code. Or can you only experience the law of love in a living being? Thus, the law of love in the new covenant is not written on stone. It's written in the heart. Right. So when the Old Testament system was kept in the ark and the New Testament's in the heart, does this give us any insight in what the heavenly sanctuary is? Where's the law kept in the heavenly sanctuary? In a building or in the spirit temple? In the Old Testament system, the blood was taken throughout. In the New Testament, Jesus said in John 6, 53 and 54, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Where is it going in the new system? Within, Within the believer. And then we can read some texts in Ephesians 2.19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as a cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. God's throne room? Hmm. 2 Corinthians 6.16, For we are the temple of the living God. I will live in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. It's 1 Corinthians 3.16, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, and God's Spirit lives in you? Or 1 Peter 2.4-7, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God, and precious to him, you also, like living stones, notice these words, living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. What would a spiritual house, another name for that, be called? Church, temple, sanctuary, spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices accepted both through God, to God through Jesus Christ. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Malachi 3, 1 through 3. And this actual text is talking in the exact same time frame as Daniel 8, 14. Daniel 8, 14, 2300 days and the sanctuary will be cleansed. Malachi 3, 1 through 3 is talking the same event. See, I will send my messenger who prepares the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, 
The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord. But who can adore the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Be like a refiner's fire, a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Now notice, he will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. What's he purifying? A building or people? And the Levites are what Peter said, the priesthood of believers. Hmm. And then he then goes on to say, then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. Uh, or Zechariah 6, 12 and 13. Tell them this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. And he will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. Wait a minute. If the temple is already in heaven, why is he going to branch out and build it? Hmm. Branch out and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he will be clothed with majesty and sit and rule in the throne. He will be priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. And then Zechariah 3, 1 through 9. It says, He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at the right side accusing him. Notice who the accuser is. It's Satan. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now notice this. Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes and stood before the angel of the Lord. What do the filthy clothes represent? Our sin, our sinful characters, our warped selfishness. Why? How do we know? The angel, the angel said to those who were standing by him, "Take off his filthy clothes. See, I have taken away your sin." The filthy clothes represent our sinful character. I have taken away your sin. I will put rich garments on you. Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave a charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge. My house and have a charge in my courts. And I will give you a place among the, the standing here. The standing here. The angels. Okay, give you a place among the angels. Listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before me, you who are men symbolic of things to come, I am going to bring my servant the branch. Who's the branch? That we just read. He's going to branch out and build the temple. See the stone. Who's the stone? Peter said the cornerstone, the stone. The stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave on an inscription, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. What is this talking about? The branch is Christ. Now, 2 Corinthians 5.1. If you ever wonder about, what about the heavenly sanctuary not built with human hands? Now we know that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Eternal house? How about John 14, 1 through 3? Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. rooms. Well, in my Father's house, you are being built as a spiritual house, the Bible says. Could it mean in my Father's house is room for many? If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come. I'm going to build my temple. I'm going to cleanse the people. I'm going to cleanse the Levites. I'm going to restore. How about the text in Thessalonians when Paul talks about the man of sin who is going to come? He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Did this man of sin after Christ's resurrection go up into the heavens and knock God off his throne and sit in a temple up there? No. Or did he enthrone himself in this temple proclaiming himself to be God? 
He has set himself up in our hearts and minds with a distorted image of God. And almost all of Christianity teaches this pagan appeasement version of God who must be appeased and paid. Rather than seeing that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We are one. And God is waiting for a group of people to win, to be won back to trust, who will open the heart, who will receive the Spirit to regenerate them in Christ's likeness. Thoughts about any of that? That was a lot of Bible text. And you've got to use your computer to put the text together. It's like building a, a puzzle. All these different texts give us a little insight in the whole thing. But I'm going to suggest to you that the heavenly sanctuary, and I, did, I left some texts out. They're in the notes. The heavenly sanctuary talks about in Hebrews, you are citizens. Uh, let, me, let me find that one in the Hebrews text. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. And I'm going to suggest to you that description is describing the heavenly sanctuary right there. Yes? I would say that the heavenly sanctuary you know, is not a building. It's, I don't even think it's God's throne. God's throne is our mind. And the heavenly sanctuary is nothing but God's presence. Well, I like where you're going. The only addition I would make is, is it is constructed. It's when in Job chapter 1, all the sons of God joined and gathered around him. And, and he was there and there was complete unity of love flowing from God through Christ out into the free and loving hearts of beings, flowing back to God again. This assembly of love of the unified, intelligent beings, all with the law of love written, that, I think, is, is God's sanctuary. That's where he dwells in the hearts of his people. That's, and that's what he's trying to cleanse. And that is the work he's trying to do now. And he's trying to build his temple by cleansing you and me, preparing us to be part of that eternal home and that eternal abode with him and all the intelligent beings in heaven who are loyal and faithful. Amen. Thoughts about that? I mean, that's pretty revolutionary. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you will finish your work in our hearts and minds. We know that when you come, we're not going to have all the questions answered about all those things. We have so much more to learn. Our minds want to be open to the leading of your spirit. Help our minds put together the the scripture truths that we can build these pieces and see you more clearly. But we know one thing and one thing for sure, that you are exactly as Jesus has revealed you to be. That there is no disparity among you, that you are never changing. You are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that if we've seen Jesus, we have seen you. And he is the lens and the template that we must judge the Father by. And we have judged you to be holy and righteous and worthy of our worship. And we give our hearts to you now and ask that you would send your spirit, that third member of the Godhead, to take all Christ has achieved, renew it in us, that we can be brought into unity and oneness with you and and bring others back to the knowledge of you, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.